This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. podcast about the books you've been meaning to read my name is craig my name is andrew and we're here with another bonus episode this one's in the month of june it's june 29th we're like days earlier in the month than we normally do yes (laughs) but we're yes kind of scraping by on this one we have some of our wonderful patreon donors hanging out in the chat uh, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and to those who are here today while we talk. Uh, and the ones who have recognized Craig's new place in the background. Yes. Brand new place. My brand new place. We talked about it already, but now we're in the episode, so it's like it didn't happen when we talked about it before. Oh, my God. Oh, boy. Um, we are here to talk about a book that I read, because uh, in every episode, one of us reads a book and tells the other person about it. Usually a book we haven't read before. Uh, and a book that maybe like you've heard about, that you want to check out, that you've read. Anyway, I read Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Muir. Um, 2019 sci-fi and change novel, <laughs> it sounds like. Sci-fi, sci-fi and, and change. That's a reference to the genre, yeah. Yes, yes. Like the genres that it spans. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, I don't know, what, do you, what, what vibe are you bringing to this recording Andrew, what do you got going on? I'm bringing the book. What are you bringing? I mean, my kid's sick and the vent popped off the back of my dryer like 45 minutes before you're supposed to start. So that's kind of what I'm bringing is just like hoping that everything holds together before I can go on vacation next week. Yeah. Bring in some real like 90s sitcom dad energy. Sure. Yes. Or just like tired 2021 dad energy. Well, yeah, that's true. If I was a sitcom dad, I could make my kid disappear whenever I needed to for Ah. plot contrivance purposes. It would really be like I didn't even have a kid unless I needed to have one for (laughs) For something plot plot related. Yeah. Yeah. Because like Joey lost my baby or something. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So, okay. Anyway, let's talk about this book. Uh, This was a Patreon recommendation from Dan. Thank you, Dan. Dan said, I'd like to recommend Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Muir. It's usually described as, quote, lesbian necromancers in space, end quote. And it's one of the most original books I've read in a long time. When Dan says usually described, I believe Dan is alluding to the cover of the book, which uses <laughs> this quote. Well, so the cover of the book has, it's more than, than that, but it does get alighted usually to just uh, lesbian necromancers in space, which I mean, those are the most important words. They are important but... words. Um, so you have not read this book, Andrew. I've did not read this book before doing it for the show. Um, what do you happen to know about Tamsin Muir? What have you learned in between dodging your son's germs and your dryer lint? <laughs> well, I learned that uh, Tamsin Muir was born in 1985, which is the year that I was born. Whoop, 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 whoop. She's born in Australia, but grew up in New Zealand, currently lives in the the UK. So her Macmillan site, her authored page, says that she is the best-selling author of the Locked Tomb trilogy. Yeah. Which includes Gideon the Ninth and Harrow the Ninth, uh, came out in 2019 and 2020, respectively. And then the third one, Electo the Ninth, does not come out until 2022. And I was like, I guess we let people talk about planned trilogies as though they are trilogies yes but to hear her referred to as the best-selling author of a trilogy and not have the trilogy (laughs) be all the way out yet feels like some real like a you're just kind of tempting fate at that point that cart is in front of that horse (laughs) yes or that is the space ship that cargo pod is in front of that spaceship yes now i will say 
I found one interview with her. I don't remember which one it was, unfortunately, because I didn't pull the quote. might have been Vox. might have been another interview where she talked about um, trying to finish as much of the trilogy as she could before like people got it. Because she had plans for the overall arc, but didn't want to be like writing to expectations. Like she didn't want the third book and this will happen of course, but it sounds like she was most of the way finished with the second book by the time a lot of people had read this one. Um, And so she has spoken a little bit about like kind of the fact that it was a trilogy from the jump informed her writing process. It wasn't just that she like got a bunch of book deals and was, you know, coasting on all that cash. I guess. <laughs> sure. What else have you learned about her? Um, so she started her, uh, she started writing and, and publishing like right around 2010, 2011. But her first like big thing that put her on the map was her short story, The Deepwater Bride, which was published in 2015 and was nominated for a bunch of awards, including the Nebula, the World Fantasy Award and the Shirley Jackson Award. All of those in like the subcategory for novella or short fiction or, or whatever the, you know, the short the, version of yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not a full book yet. Yes. Okay. Um, and that's most of that. That is most of the author stuff that doesn't like elide into book stuff. So okay. um, when she's giving interviews about this book, she talks a lot about her, like her experience as a lesbian. She talks about, um, her experience with online and like meme culture, which mm-hmm. I, I am taken to understand comes up in this book. It is my um, understanding that it comes up even more in the second book. So if <laughs> there, there are likely things that I maybe missed in this book that might qualify as meme culture. Um, but it is my, from what I, the list, the comprehensive list of Tamsin meme references I found was actually for the second book. So okay. we'll see what we talk about today. Yeah. I mean, she talks specifically about, so here's a meme that I don't know if everybody <laughs> knows about it's do you, Craig, do you know about none pizza with left beef? No, I had to Google none pizza with left beef and I still don't understand none pizza with left beef. So none pizza with left beef is, I think it's like a 2007 ish meme and it's somebody who was experimenting with what was then the online like Domino's pizza ordering system? Ah, the the and the award winning Domino's pizza tracker. But I'm it's not. I don't think it was pizza tracker yet. It was a much rougher sort of thing. And I think this is before Domino's did that whole ad campaign about like we knew we were trash, but we're <laughs> trying so hard, you guys. When everybody's eating pizzas and they're like, "Surprise! The pizza you love is Domino's." Yeah. <laughs> So he, you know, the, the options are, are laid out. You can put toppings on the, on the left half and on the right half. And you can do, you know, you can say none of something if you don't want it (laughs) and you can select extra. And so, you know, he's testing the, the accuracy of the ordering system. So he orders one, just like regular pizza with pepperoni on one half and mushrooms on the other half. And they do put it in the box backwards. He had ordered mushrooms on the left half and pepperoni on the right half. And when he opened the box, it was the other way around, but otherwise pretty accurate. And then for the second pizza, he set everything to none and then put selected beef but only on the left and so there the image the immortal image that i'll pop up on the feed right now is just this like cooked dough circle with loose beef on it ew it's the fire festival of pizzas no (laughs) oh that's gross you you googled it, but you didn't actually see non pizza with left beef. No, because I this is I the think first time I'm showing you non pizza with left beef. Not this. I haven't looked at it this closely. This looks like a wombat, like pooped on a pita bread. <laughs> Man, so that you know that that sets a tone is when when your author knows about non pizza with with left beef and, <laughs> and doesn't in try her to like with put it off to the side when she starts you know cracking her knuckles to work on the novel okay um in in her interview with uh, vox.com she first said in specifically in reference to none pizza with left beef so sorry i'm so sorry uh but then she said (laughs) 
So, well, so I go into this and I'm like, okay, is this going to be like some Ready Player One, like reference vomit garbage that is not going to Mm. make any sense to anybody like five years from now, let alone like 50 years from now, just like for people who specifically were online in the late 90s through to the, you know, the sure mid 2010s. Like, I don't know. Um, So a couple of things she says about this one uh, that she said to the LA review of books is uh, temporality in all books is temporary temporality in books is all artificial. When you're writing fantasy and science fiction, you're reaching into the period that you're writing from. Even if you're writing in the year 20 XX, any attempt to hide that is fake. The language is going to change so strongly. The mores and cultural ideas are going to change so wildly. So basically like don't try and write something timeless. Cause you're just going to inevitably sort of fail at it anyway. Okay. Um, and then regarding like the the meme presence overall in the book, she says, uh, the truth is that I'm just a very referential writer. And my problem is that I've got a very Catholic taste. There's a lot of Bible stuff in there, too. But you see a Bible reference and are like, oh, well, the author is well learned or the author is extremely Catholic. <laughs> you come by the classics. Uh, there's a lot of references to Greek mythology, to Homer, to the Iliad. And then you come across a llamas with hats reference. <laughs> Um, and it's not because I set out, set about to make the book particularly meme It's just because I've got a crap sense of humor. I think of John 316 the same way I think about none pizza with left beam. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So every short version, everybody's making references yeah. and who are you to decide which references are smart and highfalutin and good and which ones are stupid and bad. All right. <laughs> which I, I, which I get. It's, I get that. Yep. Okay. This is good. I like this. I'm glad um, that you know all about non pizza with left beef now. I really didn't. I don't mm-hmm. know why I didn't. Hmm. I feel like I've seen like snippets where it's like, can you draw a wizard in the pepperoni for me and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people will do that, but hmm. Cassandra in the chat is is describing explaining the doge no. part <laughs> of dogecoin to somebody. Yeah. Explaining a meme is like gaslighting yourself almost you you inevitably feel completely unhinged when you're trying to describe a meme to somebody who doesn't understand what it is i was teaching a class uh i'm ready to i know my segue back to the book but i'll just share this i was teaching a class about two or three years ago um with some college-age students uh and a co-teacher who's a little bit older than me uh, and is way less online and the parameters of the group activity that I had them working on, they were kind of building some, they were storyboarding scenes like up on stage. And they recreated the angry, the the distracted boyfriend meme. And mm-hmm. it was still early enough in that meme's life cycle that when other people saw it, they were like, that's the meme, they're doing the meme in class, it's so funny. And my poor co-teacher was like, what's happening? Why, is, why does everyone <laughs> like this? No one is doing this seen as stupid i don't know what's going on and it was operating on a much deeper level for everyone else in that room who was extremely online mm-hmm. um and this book a lot if, of people in the chat debating the pronunciation of doge by the way mm. i think if you really want to put some stank on it you do it like the italian doge doge yes <laughs> um the inventor of doge said je so that's how you know um mm-hmm. so this book which we should just start talking about because some of the other quotes i have i think are best shared like relating to what the book is sure um oh i do want to say real quick andrew do you know who did the audiobook for this no uh let's go to mo on the flow from nickelodeon guts it's morrick work did <laughs> the audiobook for all of these novels <laughs> she's a stand-up or something isn't she like she's a she's a she gets around she's a performer mm-hmm. she's mm-hmm. been in other stuff than nickelodeon guts it's, it's just true. the main thing that we know her from yeah i just i was clicking around the locked tomb wiki and then all of a sudden i saw more quirk and i was like yes i've got guts Anyhow. i mean i you see the i forget his name even but you see the host from guts in stuff all the time oh like mike o'malley in, mark o'malley yeah yeah he's yeah. in uh the good place as the the like the doorman guy yes, who loves correct. frogs who loves frogs yeah he's in all kinds of stuff he had a whole he was like a co-star on a, on a sitcom he wore a boston Bruins shirt all the time yeah uh anywho so this book is what i've got a list here andrew and you can tell me what you want to hear the most about first okay 
It's a spacefaring fantasy novel that plays like a murder mystery. It even has a five-act structure and a cast list. It's a novel about pairs of people all competing to be the best at being the Emperor, Necromancer, God King's new minor god servant. It's a novel about a runt with no place in her adoptive home serving the maligned de facto princess uh, with whom she grew up as this intense childhood rival because their entire generation of kids on that planet died. Uh, it's a novel where there are multiple that's what she said jokes and the writing is incredibly online but also operatic. <laughs> it's a novel where the protagonist has big Naruto energy and I'm sort of here for it including the lewd part of Naruto. Uh, Gideon the Ninth loves titty magazines which she claims she reads for the stories. Uh, and it's a novel where lots of people sword fight. Where would you like so to already, go? We've first? already talked about the online aspects, and I feel like we need to split that up a little bit. So, either, <laughs> okay. t- I mean, if we want to keep talking about all the the goofy s- reference stuff, we could do the Naruto thing. But if you wanted to talk about how, where it belongs in like the sci fi fantasy genre and whatever like tropey stuff it's playing off of, I suppose we could do the like the princess she grew up with that that one let's do that one we'll go back to the naruto thing i've watched over 150 episodes of naruto so like when i encounter a naruto in the wild can't believe i can't get you to watch it pretty much any animated show i mean avatar is the one i'm thinking about i know in this specific you're really trying to get me to watch airbender and i just just keep leaning on the time i watched naruto 10 years ago and you're like well i'm still like three quarters of the way through the first season of clone wars and this is what i'm going to be watching until i'm 43 years old yep that's true anyway um so the spacefaring fantasy novel part how much um to keep the the referencing going how familiar are you with warhammer 40k andrew not i'm not okay how familiar are you? Okay, so you've played StarCraft, right? I have, yes. And it's a lot of like, it's spaceships. You've seen Star Wars. It's people fighting and laser swords. And there are dogfights and stuff like that, right? Um, I think it's pronounced doge fights. Yes, go ahead. it is. Um, it's, you love Star Trek. It's a lot of diplomacy. It's a lot of like boring but gripping stuff. Wow, right. What a what an extremely uncharitable description of all of Star Trek. <laughs> you made me watch Wrath of Khan. I enjoyed it. I had a great time. Um, it's a good movie. It's a good flick. It is a good flick. Uh, it this book it is in space, but it really feels like you're reading a fantasy novel. Like it really <laughs> feels. There are laboratories. There are doors that slide open like you're on the like the Enterprise or in the Death Star with like, you know, you touch your palm to something and it goes. But like, not a lot of people are using computers, at least as we see. There's mm-hmm. not a lot of ray guns or anything. People do travel through space in the beginning very briefly. Uh, but most of the time, you are hanging out with death wizards <laughs> and a bunch of people who wield rapiers. Mm-hmm. So it's very, yes, it takes place in space and is sort of sci-fi-y, but the like the big grand space opera feels way more like the whatever like lore bible she may have created that informs this story. But this story is way more like here's a bunch of characters in a house trying to solve a mystery everyone's got swords and magic and the Mm. house has some like space laboratory stuff but there's no robots it's all skeletons i guess in a world where you can (laughs) i guess in a universe where you can summon skeletons you don't need to make robots i guess you don't because i mean robots are just metal skeletons (laughs) just Yes, correct. If you think about it. Yeah. Um, so it's just an interesting blend. I don't know, because like I think the blend that I'm used to seeing in pop culture is the... Uh, what's the Joss Whedon show? 
Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Nope, the space Firefly. one. Firefly. It's, yeah, it's the space western thing, which even like the humans in StarCraft get a little into, and um, that kind of like, we're going off to uncharted worlds, so we might as well play twangy guitar and like deal with a little bit of Manifest Destiny in the background. But this... <laughs> This feels actually it feels way more like a like a Warhammer universe where it's this like steep things have been happening on the order of thousands of years. There is this far flung empire that you don't really get a lot of insight into, but it's just out there because it always has been. Mm -hmm. Um, And the main community, I guess, that we're a part of is called the Nine Houses of the Emperor. And. On it's it's technically nine planets, so maybe that's our solar system. It doesn't. There's no. I don't think that there's some big reveal like Battlestar where like this is actually that it, was, it was Earth system. all along. No, I yeah. don't think there's any of that. Um, but planets two through nine are the nine houses, and they each have their own culture. Uh, the Emperor lives out in space. The Necro Lord and the Undying King and all sorts of honorifics. That he has. Um, and I guess 10 or 15 or 20,000 years ago, the the system where all the planets lived died due to like a sun exploding or something. The Emperor is the first necromancer, Andrew. And he's necromancer. so. Necromancer. Necromancer. I just, I think I was kind of hyped up on his titles and I just said it weird. <laughs> okay, sure. Um, and he brought the entire civilization like back to life so now everybody is kind of they owe him he's their god and 10,000 years ago you find this out in the book he created a team of what are called lictors there are eight Mm -hmm. of them and uh, they are like his like minor god deities they're like his hands of the king uh, and they go off in space. They're very talented necromancers who serve him. I'm just going to keep saying necromancers now. Um, good. Yeah, and it's hard to do. Noticed and they, they love it. They are all they all love it. It's hard to do. Uh, oh, yeah. Brent says, however, necromancer was pronounced in Diablo 2 as canon. And I think it was necromancer. Mm, good point, Brent. Anyway, um, the emperor's emperor needs some new lictors, which is the like kickoff of the big plot of this novel. And how you get how you get lictors again? Did you tell me this already? I didn't. So okay. let's zoom in on our main character, Gideon the Ninth. The ninth mm-hmm. refers to the ninth house, which is the planet that she lives on. Um, now, are the planets ranked in order of like importance or? I, goodness or like. there does appear to be it is not quite like the social strata hierarchy of the hunger games okay but especially when we get to there's a part of the novel where uh characters from the ninth gideon included as well as two characters from each of the other planets arrive at first house which is the original planet i guess that used to be the emperor's house before he had to leave for some reason forever and they have to do a bunch of trials there that starts to feel like a locked room mystery like a like a gothic house mystery kind of thing and the intro into that feels kind of hunger gamesy in the sense that like okay we're gonna get two people from that planet we're gonna get two people from that planet and like each pair of people is gonna introduce you to that culture and that type of magic um and so while it does not devolve into a similar kind of hunger gamesy uh competition or something like that i think that is a useful reference point for how to use something like this to like turn your world building into character work um, where all of the pairs of people kind of reflect the different parts of the lore. Um, but let's talk about Gideon real quick, Andrew. Okay, let's do that. Gideon the Ninth. What's her deal? Gideon Nav um, was found on the Ninth House. She was in a compartment attached to her dead mom's spacesuit. Her mom had fallen down a chasm in the, like, the structure of all the buildings on ninth house 
And as she was dying, she said, Gideon, Gideon, Gideon. And the people on Ninth House found her. So that's what they named the baby. And they couldn't use any of their magic to, like, talk to her soul, which was, like, remarkable and notable. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't or they wouldn't? Okay. They couldn't. Her soul didn't want it to happen or something. All right. Okay, and weird. so then they re- so she's so she's a special orphan. She is a special orphan. That's the trope that we're playing off of at, at this point. A little bit, yeah. And playing off is useful because uh, for anybody who said they were confused by this book or like couldn't get into some of the magic going on, Gideon never uses magic. Gideon is not a necromancer. Gideon does not become one. There are allusions to Gideon being special because, Andrew, on what? the Ninth House um, and on all the houses, you kind of you want to breed your necromancers. You do want to make sure that the kids that you're having on your planet are magical enough, okay? So, uh, they were working to, to make sure that they were growing a bunch of necromantic babies, and some sort of flu came in and killed like all 200 of them in this one like generation of kids. And the only ones left were Gideon, this idiot named Ortus, uh, and Harrowhark, who is the other like main character who is actually like the princess of the planet. So are there other kinds of mancy that people can get into if they don't want to be into necromancy? No, necromancy is sort of like a catch-all for all of the magic that you see in the book, it is all it all derives from like thanergy and thalergy, which I believe is death magic and like death force and life force. But it yeah, all revolves yeah, yeah. around like manipulating the entropy of living matter or what people on the ninth house are really good at and what Harrowhark in particular is really good at is turning she's a bone mancer a bone <laughs> adept oh, a bone like wizard. bones from the show bones yes um she can like throw a tooth Don't, and also we can't you can't say bone mancer on our put on our family podcast you know you can't say bone mancer <laughs> Sorry. i'm not allowed to say bone mancer whoopsie doodle uh she could throw a tooth on the ground and then like turn it into a skeleton like that's what She's good at. Tooth's just a skeleton seed. It's exactly how it works in this book all the time. There's just yeah. bone chips everywhere that turn into... Uh, oh, Nora says she's a necromancer. Like she's using patellas to turn to make zombies. That's very good. Mm-hmm. I dig it. Mm-hmm. Um, the opening... Everybody in the chat going off about the bones reference, <laughs> they, of course. They really are. Um <laughs> And so, as you said, Gideon is kind of playing off of this special orphan trope. We never, in the course of this novel, we never find out what makes Gideon special, aside from, like, things in her, like her character and the actions she chooses. There's mm-hmm. no, like, you were, you're a wizard, Harry, you're a secret Skywalker. There's no, like, any of that that happens. Is there a sense that that's coming, or or, or is the book just, like faking us out by making her or- origin story special it's pot well it explains why the the specialty that they reference is that she didn't die in that flu for some reason even though she's not inherently magical and so the people who were running the planet at the time were like well we gotta keep her around because maybe she'll be useful one day in some way capacity we don't know also the fact that all 200 kids in that generation died means that now there's the whole ninth house is falling into disrepair because there's no like new generation of necromancers except for this one girl Harrowhark. so as we move into the latter half of the book where they're interacting with the other houses houses don't talk to each other that much it just doesn't happen at least not the ninth house because they're weird goth people and nobody likes them um just this whole plant whole planet's yeah. How does I guess this is Star Trek y yes. also yes. because all all planets are extremely impossibly monoculture-y. So I guess I assume that's how it's being yes. presented it, in this too. It is sort of like that. Yeah. Everybody 
and like this and that's a star wars thing that's a that's a big sci-fi thing where it's like we have to display multiple worlds and so we don't have time to tell you about the five different the hundred different civilizations that could be on this planet it's just one bone fascist planet um that's what the ninth house is star trek is so dumb about that too because it does it's like the capital city on the northern continent like this is people on their own planet talking about this stuff and yeah. they don't have like names for their things uh-huh. it doesn't make any sense um but okay okay so we're doing some of the backstory i preface everything we say here was like i pretty much enjoyed this novel i will be able to speak to why i think people bounced off of it uh, as we move through some of what happens and i think the voice that we alluded to the kind of meme voice and i do have some examples of like from the drew carey show yeah mimi shows up midway through the book and everyone's (laughs) like why is mimi here that's not my favorite drew carey character i want the craig ferguson guy (laughs) and then they close the book anyway Mm -hmm. first line of the book here's the very first line of the book andrew just to give you a sense yes now first lines are very important in the myriadic year of our lord the ten thousandth year of the king undying the kindly prince of death Gideon Nav packed her sword, her shoes, and her dirty magazines, and she escaped from the House of the Ninth. It's very, like, I don't, so whenever I reference Deadpool, I'm, like, referencing my, like, understanding via osmosis of what Deadpool is, because I've never seen or experienced any Deadpool, but it's very, like... Deadpool to me where it's like doing the thing but it's also like crudely sending up the thing you know yeah yes and I I think I too am not a Deadpool head a a deadhead a pool boy they call themselves deadheads it gets confusing I heard a pool boy as it were Uh, I think this book succeeds, perhaps, where I think a lot of people like Deadpool. I think this book does whatever that thing is well, for the most okay. part. Um, but, so she <laughs> wants to escape from the ninth house. She This is her 87th attempt. Um, she gets stopped a few ways by some adults who've been, like torturing her her whole life and like she's in a prison most of the time but she does anticipate that when she gets her freedom she can join the um, the imperial army something this book does not deal with at all is like what the empire's doing out there in the universe is it good or bad like we don't get to talk about that so the it's not even like a naruto thing where naruto dreams that he's going to grow up and be so powerful he's going to be the hokage which is like he's going to be the chief of his village of his ninja village um gideon has no such desire she just wants out and then i guess she'll get a job in the military <laughs> i don't know what she thinks she's going to do yeah um, but she winds up face to face with um the reverend daughter nonagesimus Harrowhark, who is that other girl who survived the flu, who is the princess of the planet, and the princess of the planet, Hart or Harrow, because she's going to be called Harrow the Ninth in the next book, is like, hey, I can let you off this planet, but first I need you to come to Muster, and Muster is the like come to Catholic service, the town hall Catholic service that this uh, bone religion planet has. And they go, she's like, fine, I'll go. They fight a little bit. Gideon loses the fight because she can't do bone magic. Uh, and she goes to the muster and Harrow reads this letter from the emperor. It seems like maybe your emperor god king should like, if he's capable of writing a letter, he should write them a little more often just because like, hey, what's going on? But it seems like this is a rare occurrence. And he's like, hey, I need some new lictors. So I need the like the your top necromancer uh, and their cavalier, which is a a like hand of the king style warrior servant um, pledged to their side type thing. Uh, and every planet's going to send two. You're all going to go to the first house and you're going to pass some trials and you're going to become a new minor god soldiers. Cool. Uh, mm-hmm. 
Hera's totally pumped about this because her culture is dying and she thinks that if she could become a lictor, then she could set things right. Uh, her parents still show up and her parents aren't alive. Um, she has been animating their corpses for like 10 years and nobody knows. I mean, I, yeah, I guess when all magic is necromancy, you're going to run into some necromancy at some point. Yeah. Um, no one on the planet knows. It's not, except- just, it's not all puppeteering <laughs> skeletons over here. Sometimes you get into some dark stuff. Except Gideon and one or two other people. Um, her par- they, Nobody else knows that her parents actually, uh, in response to some big tragic event, uh, they took their own lives, and she's been reanimating them the entire time since uh, to maintain power over the planet. So she's going to go off. The guy that's supposed to be her cavalier, this guy, um, Ortus, he stinks. He and his mom fl- like steal a shuttle and peace because they're like, no, I don't want to do this. And so they make Gideon the cavalier that they're going to use. And they're like, hey, Gideon... Uh, you can be our, you will be our cavalier, and if it goes well, you have your freedom, and you can leave. And it's kind of one of those things where she doesn't get to say no, but one character at least kind of vouches for her, so she thinks maybe it will actually happen. Um, I don't know if there's, I'm trying to think if there's any other, like, stories that remind me of this setup. This part of it felt... Unique enough, given the Bone Planet setting, and yeah, it is like a undead space Catholicism that they seem to be practicing. <laughs> that makes sense, given what what we yes were talking about <laughs> earlier with with Mir's Catholicism. Um, and so they go to the planet. They go to the first house, and it's a planet unlike anything that Gideon's ever seen. Uh, it's fallen into ruin, this palace called Canaan House. There's your biblical reference for you. Um, but it is a lush, watery planet that has seasons and things, which is very unlike the Ninth House planet, which might as well be Pluto, I guess. Um, <laughs> and this place... Okay, this is where it goes from, oh, am I getting a Chosen One spacefaring adventure to I'm somehow in an Agatha Christie novel where everyone can do skeleton magic. So <laughs> uh, eight pairs of people have been summoned to this mystical house that is inhabited only by weird old priests and skeleton servants. Mm-hmm. And the weird old priests are like, hey, you're all here to become lictors. That's super cool. Uh, here's a little key ring for all of you. Each pair gets a key ring. And there's a bunch of doors here. You're free to go in all of them. If they're locked, you need to ask permission or else you can't go in there. And that's it. That's the this rule. This is a real Are You Afraid of the Dark episode that they're get, that's getting set up with the... <laughs> like, somebody's going to break this rule and bad things are going to happen. Oh, to totally. It's very... It's yeah. Bluebeard. It's a lot of things. But they're all kind of playing a a competitive escape room together at the same time where they're trying to solve puzzles or they're trying to overcome challenges and there's only so many keys that they can use. Um, and lo and behold, Andrew, people start dying. <gasps> Let the bodies hit the floor. Um, oh and so, it, yeah, it really takes on an air <laughs> of... Like a lo- like a knives out or something. We're like, who is good? Who is bad? No one really knows much about what they're supposed to do. They are all smart enough to start figuring it out, but it's not like they show up and there's some like kooky space Jeff probes who's like giving them the challenges that they need to do. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm just making sure that you know what I know who jeff probst is i know who jeff probst is the the host of the show survivor and for many 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 years and shall his shall his reign last a thousand years (laughs) um so we get let me give you a like a just an overview of the characters what is interesting about this book is it opens with a dramatist personae that introduces you to all of these characters very quickly with no context 
and I quickly skimmed it because I had no context and I found all their names confusing. And I'm not going to read all their names here because I won't get them all right. But they're... Okay, so there's the people from the ninth. There's Gideon and Harrowhark. Gideon is Naruto and Harrowhark is Sasuke. That's just how it works. Um, and Harrowhark is very much like, I hate you. We've grown up together hating each other. You're here to help me do this thing, and I'm going to be your boss the whole time. Shut up, which is not Gideon's mm-hmm. deal, but she has to do it anyway. Um, the other people we meet, Silas, this guy Silas and his uncle Colum. Um, I think Colum. That, there's periods of this book where Gideon, so the book is in a close third person, so a lot of the kind of irreverent 21st century vocal tics are delivered with a sense that it's like Gideon's voice even though it's not a first person book um so like sometimes Colum gets called the mayonnaise uncle I don't really remember why she calls him mayonnaise uncle but like (laughs) that's just what she calls him for a period of time Mm -hmm. um there's two twins and they're a really good fighter that they call Babs that's not his real name there's a married couple who uh Again, in each of these couples or each of these sets of people, there's a necromancer and a cavalier. Um, there's a married That's couple. Another. So we've got necromancer, necromancer, and necromancer so far. Just for people playing yeah, the playing pronunciation, pronunciation, vowel sound bingo. <laughs> yeah, Leah's in the chat. There's a pair of uh, awful teens. There's like 13 and 14 or 15, and they, they kind of have a like Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew energy to them. Um, they're not very good at their magic, but they are very good at tailing the other people who are doing the escape room challenges. Um, there is Dulcinea Septimus. It's like from Don Quixote. Yeah, it's a reference. Ooh, reference. It's a learned Love reference. It. Um, Love it. She is a like mid twenties, like sickly young woman. Her most of the necromancers from her planet um, have some sort of like advanced body falling apart disease. That's kind of nonspecific, but it just makes they're very weak. I think it actually contributes to their thanergy, to their to their death MP points by being like so close to death. Mm-hmm. Um, is something that's talking about. Uh, they're, they're the kind. It's the kind of hit points, I guess, where yes, heal it's magic, magic would damage yeah. you. Yeah, heal ma- magic would damage you because you're. Yeah, okay. Yes. There's Got a it. there's a lot of times. There's at least eight times in the book. I I searched through my Kindle app where people sweat blood or they have blood sweat from doing their dark arts. Um, and there are probably other points where it is like alluded to, but it's just not the specific phrasing. Okay, there's Dulcinea and her cavalier. There's a guy named Sextus uh, and Camilla. Sextus nice. is a is a lo- oh that's there, here's a joke you'll like Andrew. Um, okay. Sextus's full name is like Sextus Palama something, right? And mm-hmm. at one point Gideon's like, hey, do you know that the first three letters of your first and last name are Sex Pal? Boy, that's not since you said <laughs> pool boys earlier has anything so stupid been said on our podcast. So, okay, <laughs> I'll just say then there's the ninth house, there's the prim and proper second house, which is a kind of military stuff. It's a lot of characters. It's very confusing. It took me halfway through the book before I realized I was only going to follow the characters that I really cared about. And the book did me a solid there because I didn't have to follow anyone else. Um, this book, the voice thing which I guess we'll crack open here since I just did oh, is this, sex And is this joke. interrelated with the meme thing, yes, the voice yes. thing? Okay. For me, the, the meme thing and the voice thing are the same thing. Um, it is a 21st century, sort of online, sort of irreverent, brash, uh, kind of not gussied up, you know, mode of speech that at times felt like i was li- i was reading myself summarize a character for our podcast okay in the turns of phrase that get used so like very early in the book one of the first things and this that flagged it for me um gideon is escaping she's dealing with some f- 
soldier that is preventing her from escaping. Gideon says, so here's the thing. Your lady would set the locked tomb on fire if it meant I'd never see another sky. Your lady would stone cold eat a baby if it meant she got to lock me up infinitely. And I was like, stone cold eat a baby? Stone cold eat a baby. Stone cold eat a baby. Uh, Here's another one. The enthroned lord and lady should have taken charge of the sacred ritual, but they couldn't because they were mega dead. Sure. Okay. Uh, they were uh, at one point. They were refers to two guys who were close enough to hug it out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just gonna read. Okay, at one point, another character to me because I'm I'm trying to to come up with what the common thread is, and I do think it's this. Maybe 2015 ish is the year I would I would pin it to if I had to pick a year, but like a online speak from a specific time there was a bed for harrow and a bed for gideon except that it was placed at the foot of harrow hark's bed which she could not have noped at harder yeah that's okay the key oh here's okay back to back and you're gonna hit these for you the key ring is yours i have to admit it so you must admit us she she held out the key to gideon put it in the hole griddle that's what she said said gideon yeah this is <laughs> okay <laughs> Uh, all right. This won't work, she said. I've never had to work with something so small before. That's what she said, murmured Gideon. Soto voce. Soto voce. <laughs> that doesn't. It doesn't make it classier if you just because you know what soto voce means. I'd rather be your battery than feel you rummaging around in my head. You want my juice? I'll give you juice. Under no circumstances will I ever desire your juice. So even in that, even in the flip of a character saying your juice a bunch. My juice, your juice. You can hear Harrowhark in the second quote, under no circumstances will I ever desire your juice. That is like when Thor has funny lines in the Avengers movies, and it's like sort of funny because he's repeating a thing that like Space Lord said or whatever, but he's saying it with his Thor voice and grammar. And right? his Thor intonation. Yes. yes sure. Um, Boy... Does I mean is there a character in here who like rolls their eyes and complains about adulting? No. Does anybody talk about how good their doggo is? Uh, no. There is a. Does anyone like turn to the camera and say that's it? That's the tweet. Like it feels to me like it is walking on a a cringe tightrope. It is, and it's in serious danger of falling off. It is really close, and, and it. The thing that would save it is that if it wasn't doing it all the time, like I, I get more of a sense of that because you just read all of those to me yes. right in a row. And I'm like, okay, calm down. But if you spread all of those references out over however many pages this book is, then okay, maybe that's, maybe that's more funny and less wearing. <laughs> yeah. So let me, so structurally not far into their stay on first house, uh, Hark is like, Hey Gideon, I don't want you to help me. I will go off on my own and you need to wear the goth nun costume that I brought for you that you hate where you like paint yourself in a death mask and wear heavy robes all the time. I need you to do that. And also, you're not allowed to talk to anyone. Literally, you're not allowed to speak. So for a decent chunk of the middle of the novel... Gideon only ever talks to Harrowhark, where she gets to have these kind of like outbursts where this meme modern voice is actually a way for her to push back against the authority that is controlling her. Like, no, there there are the, at one point, I think one of the teens says hot dog. And other than (laughs) that. I mean, I can only read that as a, as an, it's a wonderful life reference. Yes. (laughs) Other than that. I think it, it is very, very few times does anyone other than Gideon kind of echo this type of voice, which really works. Okay. Sure. And because there are periods of time where like Gideon can't talk or is limited in speech, so it's confined to within her head. Um, and it 
only sort of crops up when you're in an action sequence or something like that. And also there's 15 other characters who are all over the place and it is kind of confusing and everyone but Gideon sort of seems to know what's going on. So there's plenty of things for your brain to be dealing with that aren't why does she sound like someone who's on Twitter right now. Like there's, I think this is a thing where it could cause someone to bounce off the book I had to push through it to make the podcast, but I was glad to. It didn't ultimately bother me. I did make a note when the second that's what she said joke happened, and I was like, come on now. But, but I mean, you <laughs> there is a study the blade is, reference, I mean, there, Andrew. There is, a, there is an audacity to subsequent references. I mean, it's Sideshow Bob Steppo and the Rakes, right? Sure, like sure. First, it's like kind of funny, and then it's like, well, this is going on for a long time, and then it goes on for so long that the amount of time that it's gone on becomes the joke, and that can be how that kind of joke is deployed. At one point, um, Hark says that the like next- when like when I like when I break out uh, when uh, we're talking about like the people we're married to, and I yeah. do a Borat voice. Oh, to talk about my spouse like that. Borat voice, my wife. Mm-hmm. Yes, sure. Um, there is a part, this is a joke that you'd make, Andrew, where Harrow is talking about... Tell me about, what kind of jokes I would make. Fine. Harrow okay. is talking about the next activity requiring some rigor in their necromancy. And uh, Gideon says, uh, rigor mortis? I don't think that's a joke I would make. I don't know. <laughs> you. It's not, is it not horny light enough for you? <laughs> to make that joke i just it's the kind i guess it's the kind of i would make that exact joke sure or maybe that's probably one i would let go across the plate waiting for another one okay fair enough fair enough yeah well yeah if you've just made one which you probably have because you're you Mm -hmm. um yeah you can let that one go maybe make a winky face at a friend to be like hey Maybe text or maybe it. even just like raise my eyebrows a little bit and anybody who sees my face knows what yeah, happened in there, yeah, but yeah, I don't yeah, have yeah, to vocalize yeah. it to anybody. Um, okay, so let, let's talk about the the plot a little bit. I really feel like I don't want to ruin the ending for people because I did. I kind of cram jammed this book in a few days and I really enjoyed it. Um, and it is a recent enough book that I don't want to... If someone listens to this and it's like, hey, I do kind of want a Mimi space bone opera, um, then I'll, to- I'll <laughs> go check it out. That references nun pizza with left beef <laughs> for some reason. Um, okay, so what was I saying? There was a competitive escape room retreat, retreat so that they would maybe one or more of them would become hands of the emperor god king. And uh, Harahark is like, listen... Gideon, I found the hatch from Lost in the basement, and in it is a room with a creature that I can't kill with my skeletons, but it is like a co-op video game. I have to hold down a pressure plate while my skeleton goes in there, and I can't see what's happening in there while it gets killed. So you need to come with me, and you need to watch the skeleton get killed so I know what's killing it, and then we'll solve the puzzle. And this is like the first Mm. time that these two bitter their entire life rivals end up working together uh the magic that ends up solving the puzzle is okay so you're a necromancer you work with bones all the time imagine if you use same imagine if you used your powers on a living person what would that be like and that's not something that our bone mancer has done before so Harrow sort of like uses her magic to go inside Gideon's head to like not control her but see her senses and it gives Gideon weak like inside out um n- no more like like Ratatouille what Pixar movie is it the it's most a like? little bit like Ratatouille <laughs> I, I mean, I guess you're seeing through her eyes the way that the feelings do in Inside Out. So maybe that is valid. Um, but then Gideon gets like zombie weak point vision and can find all the glowing weak spots. 
uh, because of the necromancy. That's a helpful power up. Yes. And she uses it to kill the golem. They get a key. And so there are other keys that other partners of people have been getting. Um, the lady Dulcinea, who is the, the weak lady who Gideon sort of develops the hots for. And Dulcinea is kind of flirting with her the whole time, which is bumming out Sextus, who apparently has like a history with her that comes back at the end of the book. Um they they do this other challenge that involves like siphoning another person's soul to get extra MP so that you can use it to prevent an entropy field from killing you. Um, all of the magic, it's not. I saw an interviewer. I think I think it was Muir who said, um, you know, like wizards and sorcerers in D anD D, the the difference between like magic that you learn out of a book and magic that like just comes out of your body because you're a magic Mm -hmm. person Mm -hmm. uh overall it seems like muir is straddling the two the magic seems as as you watch people use it it seems pretty intuitive and flashy and you know a little anime at times but anime yes thank you excuse me Uh, i've been saying you can pronounce necro necromancer any way you want but it is anime thank you um we have house pronunciation for <laughs> Dude, these house rules. Um, they, it is very academic. Um, one of the reasons why the middle of this book, I think, could be impenetrable to some readers is because it hinges on a lot of people talking very highfalutin academic-y about death magic and Gideon has no access to how any of that works. Like, she knows that it works. She knows that people can do it, but it is not a thing she can do. And so it's just a lot of people just talking about that a lot because a lot of the puzzles, there's eight puzzles that they have to solve, which represent the eight different types of magic skills that they have to learn. After they've pieced them all together, they will figure out how to become a lictor, and then they can serve the God King. Of course, there's a monster in the basement that seems to be killing people. It may or may not be controlled by or doing the bidding of one of the 16 people, which is where it becomes an Agatha Christie murder mystery. Um, And so there's this like fun, learned scholar magic system. There is this whodunit element to all of the murders, which is like who would have a motive, who is at the various scenes of the crime, who is messing with the other characters as they try to embark on these challenges. There's a couple of different characters who have motives for wanting to undermine this whole operation. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you're also dealing with Gideon and Harrow's relationship, um, which is built built on like 20 years of really intense abuse and trauma and comes to a head with like I read this uh article on Vox by Constance Grady um who okay. I think did a book club series on this for Vox as well um mm-hmm. and did a series of like the types of tropes that you are kind of encountering in this book and one is bathtub bonding which is definitely an <laughs> anime trope where two mm-hmm. like characters end up in a bath or a pool or something to, it's sort of it that that scene happens in Game of Thrones, actually, with um, Jamie and what's her name, the Tall Knight. Uh, yeah, that one. You know what I'm talking Brienne. about. Um, and they kind of, of, you know, yes, the Tall Knight, the Tall Knight, <laughs> uh, and they share their stories, and that's where you find out a bit more about Harrow's tragic backstory, how it has influenced who she has been as she's become a young adult and now a princess and what it means for her relationship with Gideon. They come out on the other side of that relationship, I found believably bonded. And there's a lot of different ways to read their relationship. I think there are some reads of this novel that read it as way more platonic than I think Muir intended. Yeah, she was talking about that in an, in an interview and saying, you know, when it's a when it's a man and a woman, everyone's like, hey, when they gonna kiss? And when it's two women, they can be making out on screen, and then everybody will be like, what a what a cool sisterly <laughs> relationship that they have with each other. Yes, it's true. Um, and I, it 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 never becomes a romance novel, 
but the characters who have love between them, it feels way more to me like the love between like heroes in ancient Greek epics, which is both like this, which for all of history has been read as a mix of like platonic and intensely like, you know, Achilles, like homoerotic love and stuff like that, that people do or don't want to see when they are reading those stories, mm-hmm. you know? Sure. Um, but it seems, Mira seems like she knows what she's doing and what she's up to. And it does feel intensely intimate and personal between them. So I, I don't know how you would miss that. Um, sure. Yeah. It sounds pretty gay. It does sound a little gay. It does. <laughs> and so let's, we need to wrap close. up. Yeah. Let's, let's wrap it up. Um, Dan in the chat asks if you read the appendix um, and uh, if you've figured out the magic system, because it is apparently detailed in the appendix, but there is a system in the book to be figured out. And we always talk about that at some point when we talk about fantasy stuff. And I just did it come up at all. I skimmed through the appendix at the end. There's a whole section on name pronunciations that I attempted and felt kind of bad at. Um, there is, I did not like dig into the resources there for the deeper parts of the magic system, but the reveal of what the magic system is building towards at the end of this book. So there are characters. So like the Cavaliers all have to use rapiers, Andrew, which is a big deal Mm -hmm. for Gideon because Gideon was trained uh, Gideon studied the blade, another reference, and uh, wields like a two-handed sword, preferably. And her and another character, Camilla, kind of fight in an unrefined, like, fight to the death way. And all the other cavaliers are like, we're duelists. Like, quit being so, like, uncouth. Mm-hmm. Um, and there ends up being a plot reason why cavaliers have been trained to fight with these incredibly light agile weapons that anyone could theoretically pick up and wield. And there's a reason why the magic over the course of the novel is increasingly reliant upon a necromancer using another living person, perhaps their cavaliers energy to cast spells. Um, And the way that that second part shapes a lot of the relationships that start to feel very, uh, either a mix of symbiotic or like really messed up power dynamics of subservience and stuff like that. Um, the ending for Gideon is an attempt to flip that into there being like an element of sacrifice or an element of nobility to this relationship where one person is kind of feeding off of another person. Um, which is an interesting thing to find in a book where everybody is using magic based on death and someone's like, well, how can I make that a, po- how can I spin that to be a positive? <laughs> um, which is you mean just cool. making skeletons out of teeth. Isn't a positive thing. It's yeah, really I mean, sweet. Skeletons aren't Wait, bad. When they go They're to the skeletons, when they go to the pool, uh, Harrow does surround the pool with a bunch of skeletons to make sure that no one can come in. And she, the book doesn't say that like, any of the skeletons like whip out like an mp3 player or something but probably they probably put on some cool tunes you know keeping the room safe for everybody you can use mm-hmm. you can use skeletons to do nice things sometimes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i suppose um and the book ends in such a way that uh gideon could be in future novels Harrow is definitely the focus of the next novel. And the Emperor will probably be in the next novel. He shows up in the epilogue. Uh, well, you gotta have a big big bad. You do have a for your trilogy. You do gotta have a big bad. I do I did like the reveal of the bad guy in this one, the enemy in this one. Because as soon as I learned who it was, I realized, oh, there were some scenes and moments that if I had this information would read differently. And that was like a fun locked room mystery thing to encounter in what I thought was going to be a space fantasy novel. (laughs) I didn't expect Agatha Christie to show up. Sure. 
Um, she's in the novel. No, she's not. Um, and there's a bunch of cool sword she fight could stuff. Be. Maybe her skeleton is, and you just hey, know. that's like, a good you point. Don't know, you don't know who anybody's skeleton. We do are. not know that. Um, and the fighting stuff is very cool. Uh, there's lore, as I alluded to. There's lore reasons behind it, um, and it does a very good job. She does a very good job of conveying character through fighting style, through um, the weapons that people wield. Uh, if that is like up your alley, you will find it here in spades. Okay, so. and in space, yes. Tyson Fine uh, says it is a locked locked tomb mystery, which, yeah. There's something in the locked tomb on the ninth house, and uh, they got to keep it in there. That's that's the world building. Um, anything else, Andrew? Any other memes you want to teach me about today? No, I feel like you got you to gotta space them out. Like, you, you need to fully absorb, like, nun pizza with left beef. That's just before you can move on to like left shark or here's what uh, what are the other good memes? Uh, all your base are belong to us. Here's one I got for you that I learned about a few months ago. Um, let me pull it up here. Uh, it's a, it's a good copy pasta meme for you that was put on a Garfield comic. Why do they call it oven when you oven the cold food of out hot eat the food? Yeah, I read that and my brain couldn't make sense of it, so I threw it in the brain trash. <laughs> <laughs> but why why do you? I don't understand the question and I won't respond to it. <laughs> and yes, it's definitely Tysophene. I messed it up. My bad. Yeah. Um all right. Thanks for uh going to space and other places with me, Andrew. Yeah, thanks for listening to my memes. Just gonna flash that uh, good pizza back. Yeah, up put on that pizza back up bit. there. I will remind folks while they're looking at this uh, dirty beef pizza um, that you can send us an email with your favorite memes to overduepod at gmail.com. You can uh, hit us up on Twitter and Facebook at overduepod. I want to thank Nick Larangis for the use of our theme song that he composed. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? You should go to overduepodcast.com, which is our internet website, uh, where all of our links are. All of our links and binks. Um, we got links to Apple and to Google and our RSS feed. Uh, we are on Stitcher. We're on Spotify. We're anywhere you can get podcasts. We also have a link to our Patreon page. Thanks to all of our patrons for coming and hanging out and talking about kangaroo testicled skin purses i guess which is a thing that people were going on about for a bit Uh, mm, (laughs) what yeah i (laughs) okay sign up on patreon i guess (laughs) yeah uh patreon.com slash every pod once again um our july schedule will be up soon or it will be up now i don't know when you'll be listening to this in like the course of linear time so, yeah, there you go. I'm so tired. Get us out of here, bud. All right, everybody. Thanks for coming and listening to our us talk about space and skeletons and stuff. Until we catch you next time, please try to be happy. Well, yeah, you can't see my face because I'm talking like this into the microphone. It's just how it is. He only turns his face away from the mic so he can breathe. Mama economy, help me understand. Making a reference to a meme from like 15 years ago is appropriate for this book, I think. Daddy's on a welfare plan. Um...